Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Sam Dolby. While nations are often understood as old, even eternal groupings of people from a shared stock, the current historical consensus on nationalism emphasizes the recentness of these imagined communities. The classic work of Eugene Weber entitled Peasants into Frenchmen illustrated how the country of France only came to be a space where the majority of the population spoke French and identified with a French nation through state projects undertaken in the countryside over the decades leading up to the First World War. During the interwar period, nationalist and socialist movements throughout the world looked to the peasant as both the source and object of state programs wherein establishing a link between the center and the provinces was a critical part of fostering the sense of nation devised by elite intellectuals. In Turkey, the ideas of Ziya Gökalp regarding the importance of the Anatolian villager in the development of Turkish national culture are a prominent example of how interwar nationalists saw the peasant as the stuff of the nation. In Republican Turkey, under the governments of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk and İsmet İnönü, these ideas were incrementally put into practice through the establishment of schools, community centers known as halk evleri, village institutes, and other state and civil society institutions where the differentiated Anatolian peasantry would encounter and internalize the idea of Turkishness. Likewise, a project aimed at developing a national corpus of folklore called Yurtan Sesler compiled songs of Turkey's different regions to be disseminated throughout the country via radio, live performances, and in musical institutes, thereby incorporating the Anatolian mosaic into conceptions of the nation in the center. Another such program, which sent professionally trained Turkish painters into the Anatolian countryside over the period of 1938 to 1943, sought to create artistic depictions of the Turkish nation while fostering links between citizens in the cities of Istanbul and Ankara and the villages of rural Turkey. This art and its context will be the subject of our conversation today with our truly esteemed guest, Sechil Yilmaz, a PhD student in the Department of History at the City University of New York. Sechil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris, for having me. Now, for those who are listening via iTunes or remotely in some fashion, I want to emphasize that this episode is accompanied by a number of visuals, uh, paintings done by artists in Anatolia that can be found on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Sechil, actually a lot like Sam and I, is currently working on her dissertation that's about disease in the Ottoman uh, Empire during the early Republican period. And while today's discussion may seem a bit far afield from that topic, perhaps we're going to find some intersections, I think. One that immediately comes to mind is the figure of the uh, traveling doctor, Seyar Tabib, uh, that we see emerging during the late Ottoman period as a means of deploying medical knowledge and treatment in the countryside. I, I thought of these doctors when reading your paper on, on the artist because... Much like uh, these doctors were sent out with syringes to inoculate people and thereby, you know, sort of strengthen the country or the nation, these uh, artists were sent out with their paintbrushes to do the same in the Anatolian villages, so we have a little analogy working there. Right, absolutely. So I think one of the themes we have in the background of this conversation is uh, how connections are fostered between spaces like center and periphery or city and countryside, and, and as well as different classes within the context of, of a nation state. Right. In the um, traveling doctor's example, the center is like given the remedy, mm-hmm. finding the remedy and basically r- learning from popular medical figures in the countryside. Here, the um, idea is more about learning about 
the countryside. There is a memory issue is at, at stake there. And this is, I think, very much connected to um, Jakub Kadri's um, novel. It is about the ignorance of the Republican cadres about Anatolian people and their everyday life, their colors, their images, their behaviors, their needs, their tastes. And so the artists were sent out to basically become the messenger for the government in Ankara. And and this lasted for five years. Mm-hmm. A very, very interesting period. It directly overlaps with the World War II. And I think it's really interesting to look at these pictures and see the psychology behind the motive of sending artists to, the, to Anatolia. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. And it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Jakub Kadri Karosmanov's novel Yaban, right. right? Where this kind of bourgeois intellectual, you know, during the War of Independence period, goes out in the countryside and realizes that he doesn't have as much in common with your average Anatolian villager as maybe the nationalist uh, imagination would suggest, right? And it reminded me of uh, a quotation from Abedin Dino that you mentioned in your paper. We're going to talk about him. Abedin Dino is a Turkish painter, and uh, he was criticized for, I guess, maybe not romantically enough portraying the Anatolian peasants, Absolutely. isn't that right? Absolutely, yes. Kind of realistic uh, portrayal, at least in his mind. And and what he said to his critics, we, we've translated it into English here, there had been people who painted on Anatolian village and villager themes before, but in these paintings, the villagers were healthy. The villages were pristine. He says, tertemiz. They were beautiful and decorative to the degree that they were unrealistic paintings. As for me, I drew the poor, sick, malaria-stricken villagers that I saw. Yes. Well, I think when we are talking about the Republican period, like early ter- early 30s, early 40s, one thing is like seeing the picture as one color, whereas it was very politicized. So we cannot actually put Jakub Kadri and Abidin Dine in the same picture in the sense that they were politically in very different polars at the, at the time. So Abidin Dino was targeting. So he was basically, we can tell that. The difference is the difference between theory and practice. Mm-hmm. Jakub Kadri is the theory was the theorician. He was basically the the policymaker of the Republican period, whereas Abinindino was the practitioner, and he was after the everydayness in all of his pieces. So this is where actually his criticism is coming from. In that sense, the, the pieces that he brought from Balikesir back to Ankara to be exhibited in the in the Republican ball, the criticism was really strong against him for for depicting Ibrik, which mm-hmm. is basically an which is not a symbol of the of the Republican regime, which is not a symbol of modern life in the village. So, I think um, I think looking at these um, uh, painters going to the countryside and they, what they brought back is a good way of understanding the criticism towards the Republican era, the pro- Republican policies at that time. You, you mentioned the divergence of theory and practice here in sort of nationalist uh, agenda. And I, I'm just curious, Abedin Dino, I guess he was, was he uh, sent on a, a journey like funded or encouraged by the state? Yes. But at the same time, the people who are encouraging these journeys maybe aren't 
expecting that kind of criticism to come back. He's he's a voice of of dissent there in in this regard. Yes, and at the same time, um, there's this one thing that the Republican um, policymakers, the Republican politicians, were not only trying to recruit the people, the common people, but they were also trying to recruit the intellectuals. So I see these journeys is also a way to recruit the intellectuals who are mostly based in Istanbul. Mm. So um, I'm not really sure whether they were really expecting this kind of criticism. But I think the main idea was to mob- mobilize intellectuals to defend this Halkadoru towards the people movement. So that's basically my opinion on this. So on, so on the one hand, we have these artists going into the countryside, the state's paying for their expenses, and the state has some expectation for what kind of art they're going to produce. Do you have a sense of, of where, is, where is the art going? What kind of circuit is, is the art? Uh... Right. I think, yeah, I think we absolutely have an idea, and they also have an idea about that, because the main idea behind this project, this grant program, if we can talk within our contemporary terms, this is a grant project. It's basically a kind of an um, reaction to the abundance number of pictures, the repertoire of Istanbul, the Bosphorus, and the whole Ottoman heritage. So it's time to create an Ottoman, um, the, the Anatolian uh, repertoire, a kind of an encyclopedia of the image for Anatolia. So what they're expecting from this, these artists to come back with the images representing the beauty of village, the productivity of the Anatolian villages, and the hardworking peasants, and the beauty of village life. Because it, we, we should probably keep in mind that this is basically time that, that the village life is right after World War One, right after the fall of um, industrialization dreams. This is basically the ri- rise of village life, beautification of village, esp- especially in like Western Europe, in Scandinavia. There are all these village projects sure. that are going on. Not just in, in the Soviet Union, absolutely. which is a non-national context, but then also in Germany. Absolutely. Germany, the ultimate national context. Syria. Everywhere, of course, in the French mandate, like, anywhere you go. For example, Sibel Bozdan in her in her the seminal book, she has just one particular chapter about the village projects and their models mm-hmm. and the discussions about w- how a village should be. So this is also in the village revol- revolution overall. Yeah, we actually did a podcast with Sam about uh, Sam presented some research on. Uh, a similar project in Lebanon out of AUB where I guess Lebanese nationalists, of course, operating within the framework of the French mandate government were participating in a similar project. So right. they didn't even have uh, a national government, but they're doing this kind of like national projects in the countryside. So I have a few more questions about the this, this program of sending artists out to the villages. Uh, I want to know... How many individuals did it involve, you know, in terms of how many artists? And also, specifically, what locations did they send him to? Because if you want to find the, you know, quintessential Anatolian peasant, the first problem you're going to have is that all the different regions of Anatolia are completely different. Right. It's more than 60 artists. So per year, more than 10 artists were sent for almost six weeks. 
And it's really interesting. This is like making of a new country. So it's basically spatial, a new spatial organization of modern Turkey. So there is no province system. It's all cities. There are 67 cities, 66 at the time. Hatay was not part of it yet. So they actually are trying also to pinpoint the understanding of a city, the spatial, a new spatial organization of the country. So they pretty much sent people, these artists, everywhere. Um, mostly in, uh, to the, to the uh, western Anatolia. They sent it to, to Ushak, to Balıkesir, to Kütahya. Um, some artists... In central Turkey, they sent people, sent artists to Tunceli. They sent artists to Hakkari in southeastern Turkey. So they pretty much tried to reach out in Black Sea region, of course, many artists. So pretty much that they can, they can actually collect information and represent seven regions and particular cities that are central, that will be central to the agenda. It's really similar to what we mentioned, you also mentioned in your paper, the Yurtan Sesler collection of uh, Turkus, of folk songs. Right, right. All these folk songs from very disparate regions, Most, of, many of these communities, maybe even their native language isn't actually Turkish, but they all have these Turkish folk songs. Right. Compiling these into kind of a... A repertoire. It's basically an encyclopedia. It's basically making of a dictionary, right? And basically um, redefining and modifying and taking samples create and leaving out that is not fitting into the model. So this is particular. I mean, it's, ver- it's a very cliche word, but it's basically an engineering project. And what is interesting, it's all about cultural policy. And cultural policy next to like with, with health policy, with population policy, they're two big projects of the Republican era. So they they managed, in a way we can talk about, they managed by the 50s and 60s, we see that they were successful in quotation marks in realizing those two policies. You mentioned that some things have to be left out of this encyclopedia. Do you have a sense from these images or critiques of them about what, what's left out? I mean, we don't see urban migrant uh, art, right? Glorification of the urban migrant. There, there's something about the peasant, but what else is there and what isn't there? Yeah, we actually know what has been left out from first-hand um, witness. One, two painters, one went to Tunjeli and the other went to Sirt, and they sent letters, they wrote di- diaries, and um, they had pictures that, that weren't, they weren't particularly speaking to the uh, Republican agenda. Mm-hmm. And they were basically censored. The pictures were not exhibited in the exhibition. The um, letters disappeared. The diaries dis- disappeared in the end. So we know that this is also a memory-making process. And those very uh, personal experiences were silenced. So therefore, we know that there is actually a very particular agenda and behind this project. Well, it seems like kind of a dissonant state policy to send this is coming immediately after what we call a Dersen massacre or anyway whatever you want to call it the yes. the republican government had just bombed for over a year you know the region of Tunjeli had all these resettlement policies etc and now they 
what did they what did they expect was going to happen when they send some artist out there to yes paint and take notes that's that's obscure to me as well i wish i had an answer but it would be very nice to talk to uh, people connected that artist who visited there or i wish we just had the opportunity to have his diaries and memories to be able to reach that information that we don't have it so you brought up sources here and um it, of course it would be great to have these diaries um, but something you brought up earlier was the fact that we can actually look at some of these paintings now and some of them are lost so maybe you could tell us more about why some of them are lost and then also what what kinds of things can we as historians take from these paintings and, and how is that difficult and if I could kind of piggyback on that question, I think one of the things we need to talk about is which artistic uh, styles and motifs we see reflected in the paintings and what the politics of those different styles are. You know, art like an artist like Marc Chagall comes to mind with sort of modernist or cubist or this like fauvist representation of countryside that was very popular during the interwar period. Right. Well, so like what kind of art is being produced? And then to follow up on what Sam is saying... Yeah, what exactly does that tell us? Right. It seems like there is actually tension in the artistic circles around that time. Um, and the pioneering artists are basically following Cubist and um, constructive um, circles at the time. So, and I think Abidino is just one of them, trying to de grupo as they're known. And when we, when we look at the pictures, what we see is mostly the uh, the beauty of the countryside. We see landscape a lot, which basically lacked in the repertoire. We mostly have Istanbul and the mosques and the Bosphorus, whatsoever. So this basically added to that image repertoire, the landscape, understanding of landscape. And the other thing is the fertility, which was basically represented with the body of peasant women and and also the the the agriculture products were part of those pictures we have um especially in western anatolian those who visit the western anatolia they depicted a lot the, the productivity of the countryside and like artists like bedri rahmi Eubolov, whose picture is right now in istanbul modern the life in a coffee house and the musician in the coffee house was depicted. So we actually have a glimpse of everyday life in the village. So it's, it's really uh, very diverse. The interpretation is very diverse because people who were visiting, who were living, they were not only painters, they were, in a sense, short-term anthropologists, I guess. Yeah. So their experience in the village is a new thing. So they actually themselves rarely had the idea of a village. So it's in that sense, this is such a special project. Looking at these pictures, while looking at these pictures, I think we should ask these questions as well. They did not born in a village. They weren't born in a village, right? And they were lost. Most of the pictures, so the project aims at collecting the pictures per year and exhibiting them in the opening uh, of the Republican Ball. And after that, they're collected in the people's house in Ankara, people's house in Ankara. And later, um, they were stored in the rooftop of uh, Ankara Tatuk High School. 
And in the end, I probably it was in the 50s, the, um, they were damaged because of the heavy rain one night. <laughs> Some of the artists don't know where their pictures were. And one of them, if I'm not mistaken, it was Melihat Ekinji. One day she goes to um, a theater, Ankara Oda Teatrosu. As she was waiting for the show, she sees one of her pieces in the theater hall. And she was very surprised that she had no idea that that picture survived. So there are these, again, making of a memory and loss of a memory is also an interesting side of this, this theme, this project. And, and again, I want to reiterate that our listeners should uh, look at these some of the images we posted on the website because the, the paintings are really quite fascinating. They don't have that kind of orientalizing sense that maybe some might expect from you know, professionally trained artists uh, and, and what we saw with early, you know, Western Orientalist painters in the Ottoman Empire. To, to bring this into the politics of the present a little bit and then go back to the past because it's safer there. Um, one of the ways Recep Tayyip Erdogan has uh, tried to differentiate himself and his supporters from, from a lot of the protesters in Istanbul uh, is, is by saying that they're they're arrogant and stuck up and and um, he he famously said they think we don't understand art um, and you mentioned that these pieces of art from from the 30s and early 40s were exhibited at the Republican ball so what does that say about the use of art as a signifier of, mm. of prestige um, and of course you don't need to talk about the present but if you have any thoughts on on how how the tables have turned from art being something that the ruling party wants in a certain way i think the um the central idea is education like the formation of a republican idea is not separate from formation of the republican politician an artist an intellectual engineer you you are supposed to meet in a common understanding of the world and culture and the country. So I think this is the whole idea behind education is to create a new coding Turkish mind, right? So that's that I think makes art at the very center of this education policy. It's about being a modern individual. It's being part of the rest of civilization. Though imagining that civilization has some nuances that, that should be an, a non-Ottoman and spe- uh, skeptical to Western values, right? In that sense, I think it is connected to your question about the lack of Orientalist ideas in these pictures. So when we, let's think about these artists. They were not old people. They were probably in their late 30s, early 40s, they were the productive early 20th century. They, were, they, ju- they graduated from art school because they are Mektepli. They are not mm-hmm. Alayda. They were probably graduated from those art schools around 19, from 1918s, 1925, between that. So that's imagining the, the, uh, the generation. Mm-hmm. They are a product of nationalist policies and a, and a reactionary ideas towards Ottoman 
policies, Ottoman uh, perspective, mm-hmm. and and also the to to basically cosmopolitanism, like the internationalism. They're they're basically the product of early twenties. And and you mentioned Melahat Akinji. Are there other women, or is it kind of what's the gender ratio here with the artists they're choosing? Um, there are very few women, as far as I remember. There are three or four women who were sent, not many. And when we think about the ratio, it's definitely a male-dominated painters group. More than the painters who were sent, the women who appeared in the pictures, the ratio is 50-50 in that sense. Mm. There are so many women in those pictures. So those male painters like and prefer painting Turkish uh, women peasant. Well, it, it it gets to the whole point about uh, fetishization of the villager in the first place. Within nationalist discourses, sometimes you have this kind of gender binary where the state or the nationalist who represents the state is kind of a male paternalistic figure and the nation itself is, is the woman. I mean, it's interesting if we look at Melahat Akinji's picture of the Aydınla Kadın, the woman from Aydın, uh, if we compare with the other representations of women, at least that you've provided in your article, this is sort of the one that most screams for fertility. It's the most um, sort of feminized representation of women out of out of all of them, in my opinion, at least. Absolutely. I mean, there. I think there are many other examples of that in the um, catalog of Milli Reosurans. So, in terms of the appearance of women in those pictures, it's also very diverse. And, I mean, if I, I'm not an art historian, so it wouldn't be right for me to talk more and like read these pictures in terms of the existence of women and how the, what they represent. But what I can say is like, uh, they were depicted a lot because of the power of representation based on women at the time. So I think that's one thing that I can mention. But I think we need... To, art historians to to tell us more about that i think these are really rich sources for the period i hope that there's more work being done on these maybe by art historians or people who want to look at the representations that are taking place here it's really a snapshot both of um, on one hand nationalist ideology and conceptions on the other hand maybe intellectuals as we gave the case of abedin dino who are operating within this context but maybe playing with a little or even challenging some of the dominant representations. Absolutely. And on the other hand, the society, you know, there are also sources for what uh, Anatolian life looked like, at least to an urban uh, observer during this period. So you said in your paper that all, all of these activities were under the education ministry and the, the uh, a ministry of culture wasn't formed until the 1970s. So that seems like it relates to some of these things you're saying about the didactic purpose the the teaching purpose of of so much of this work right um not until 18 1970s that there was a um, minister of culture it was marif Müdüriyeti that was taking care of both cultural policy and art affairs and education policy meaning that actually they were all combined um to form the new individual and by the time in 1970s, it's basically the invention of culture 
invention of Ministry of Culture as a bureaucratic uh, concept and as a political concept. And this is not, I mean, Turkey is not a unique example. It is a global issue at the time when we look at South America, uh, when, we, when, when we think about the Middle East in general, like maybe we can say the global South of today, the uh, Ministry of Culture, the, the concept of culture was politicized in the 70s. So back in then, like the education and cultural policy was very much combined uh, before World War II and during World War II. So it seems like that gives us a good sense of the scope of the social engineering project at work. Yes, this is and this is an, a very interesting example. Um, it's not only to produce; it's not only art for art, whatsoever, but it's basically art to represent, to teach, and to form um, knowledge. So it's basically knowledge making, where the next generation is going to remember inherent and build up its own history so in that sense it's very timing of this project and the target of this project is very well calculated yeah and when you situate it in this particular context where as you said this is going on all over the world um and and really there's a the, the the paintings are very similar to what you see coming out of mexico for example during this time period and whether we're looking at murals by Diego Rivera or New Deal artists in the United States in the 30s. It seems like there's this championing of the worker or the peasant. How much is Marxism playing a role in this movement? Yeah, we refer to Abidindino a lot. So I think he is the answer to this question. It is a part of it. I mean, they have been, they have inspired a lot from these global movements and ideas and circulation of artistic ideas they are part of this um, global family in that sense. They do travel. They do look at other pictures. They are very connected. So in that sense, we, we see the reflection of it and a lot of inspiration in those pictures. Yeah, of this like very, I guess, socialist or something time period. And so I guess t- to conclude the podcast, I want to know... What happens to this program at the end of World War II? Obviously, we know, like for in the case of Germany, why maybe the the dominant ideologies of the time fell out of favor, um, and maybe in other parts of the world we can see that there's a ideological shift taking place. But why does this program end in 1943, or does it lead to something else? Um, seems like it ended because of budgetary issues. They just couldn't fund the project anymore. That's one thing. And the second thing is they couldn't find volunteers to go. They couldn't find any more artists to participate. At, like around that time, the people's motivation about going to Anatolia uh, was not as strong. So seems like there are these two factors played a role. So they basically um, left the idea. But some of those artists basically were able to form a new group and they were they were more um geared they geared towards uh understanding everyday life and depicting everyday life in the urban so we can also see the transition of that interest from village to urban center and very soon we'll also see the dispossessed 
peasants um, running to the city. Coming to the scene, exactly. Absolutely. So yeah, there is the sense that it did give rise to a, like a generation of artists with maybe a shared, a shared worldview influenced by this experience of participating in the yes. journeys. To, yes. It's just interesting how the artists apparently don't want to go to the countryside anymore. And so many of the peasants want to leave the countryside too. It's like the darker side of these representations of some idyllic rural area. Yes, and I think it falls right to 1946 where they start talking about the uh, land reform and it led to new transformation, like a big transformation in the countryside. So I think it requires an, a deeper look into what happened after, so to speak, in, during transition to democracy as of yeah. 1946 it's, it's and difficult, later. difficult to capture a property regime in a painting. Absolutely, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, but I think we have ended up right where we started with this divergence of theory and practice, right? For example, when they build roads in Turkey uh, following World War II, the idea is that the roads will incorporate the countryside into the nation, maybe the effect is that it facilitates migration to the city and the, the emptying of villages. So you constantly have this plan, this theory. When it gets put into practice, there's a problem and it, it leads to a new iteration of a, a new theory. Right. Let's celebrate um, Ipin Thompson then, the poverty of theory. <laughs> <laughs> well, Suchil, I really liked having you on the podcast. This was a fun topic for me and also a visually stimulating topic that I'm sure our listeners really appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a pleasure for me. For those who want to find out more about our topic, we do have a short bibliography on our website where you can also find some images. You can leave your comments and questions for the podcast. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take care.